Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. Thank you for joining us again. My name is Matt, and on today's cast are my illustrious co-hosts, the Dame, Tiffany B. <laughs> Sorry. Hey. <laughs> not too laughy. I'll try again. Hey. Oh, man. And the Damsel Dan. Hello. All right. So, if you are already excited for... The crap storm that is this episode. Feel free to tune in with us on Facebook and Twitter for some more of this lovely action by searching for the League of Nonsensical Gamers, or shoot us an email, podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com, or head over to the BGG Guild, number 2077, and you can chat with us about our discussion topics and our reviews and anything else that's on your mind. So for episode 16, we've got some good stuff lined up for you. We're going to chat about Unpub 5 and do a little wrap-up, and then we are going to Go back to basics and do a review. We haven't done a review in a little while, and we are going to chat about Roll for the Galaxy. But before we get into any of that, we're going to chat a little bit about what we've been playing. So, we're going to break from tradition of making Tiff go first, and I'm going to chat by bringing up Scoville, which is a game that all three of us have gotten to play recently. So, this was a 2014 uh, spring Kickstarter that funded pretty well. This is from TMG and designer Ed Marriott. And this is a game about planting and picking peppers and turning them into hot sauce and things like that. So in this game, basically you are a farmer and you and the other players are wandering around the pepper garden and you are planting different colored peppers. Um, and the way that you plant them will allow you to harvest different hybrid peppers in the future. Um, and they use a cool like color and size mechanic where like certain colors make Certain other colors, basically like, you know, blue and yellow, make a green pepper and things like that. So there's an interesting auction mechanic throughout the game for turn order, which dictates how you progress through three different phases, which is planting, then harvesting, then selling these off for victory points and for money. And, you know, it's it's not a terribly complicated game, but there's some interesting mechanics that they put in play that I haven't really seen before, particularly particularly this kind of like serpentine snake draft um, with the the order of play. So like I said, you auction for first player, um, but that's only for the first phase because during the second phase, whoever is last gets to go first. And then during the third phase, the first player gets to go first again. So you kind of go up the, the turn order, then back down, then up the turn order again. Um, and I think that that is a pretty unique way to kind of progress through this game. And for me, at least, was probably the most interesting part of it. Because other than that, it seems pretty stock set collection, in my opinion, at least. I don't know. What did you guys think of it? I, I liked it. I compared it loosely to Fresco, which is another game where you're collecting various colored cubes, combining them. These are paints in that game. And you're combining them to make different colored paints so that you can paint your fresco in the, the church, etc. Similar with Scoville, you're collecting, like Matt said, different peppers, planting them, and then harvesting them and seeing what the, the genetics of the color have, have schemed up for you there. The rule book is like four pages. So this, this game is one of those that's terribly simple to learn. It's really... I think it's accessible to 
all types of gamers. But I agree with Matt. It's pretty bog standard at the end of the day. I think it's the pepper meeples are really cool. Um, there's all different shapes and sizes. You're actually physically planting them in the board, which has cutouts that allow for the, the different peppers to be placed. Graphic design and art-wise, it's I think it's Josh Capel. So it's got a similar feel to Belfort uh, for me, another TMG release. Oh, yeah. I never made that connection. Yeah, so it does kind of look like Belfort. Yeah, it's got a Belfort feel, but in a modern kind of farming society. So overall, I thought it was good. I think there's I think there's a little bit of depth to be had, uh, as Matt mentioned in the the turn structure. Uh, depending on what your strategy is, you may want to go first, you may want to go last, you may want to go in the middle. You never know. It's it's really up to you how you do that. Uh, my one problem with this game is it seems we've played it with, I think we played it with four and five. I mm-hmm. think those are the two player counts we've played it with so far. And there's a little AP to be had, uh, mainly through the combinations of the peppers, determining where you want to go, how you can plant the peppers, and then harvesting them. So that may resolve with more plays, but I'm not sure that this game will capture my attention enough to want to play it over and over again. It's not something I'm always going to be reaching for, but I would definitely play it. Yeah. Tiff, I know your group, you got to play this, and your group is a little more AP prone. How'd you guys do with Scobo? Well, I didn't play with the group. I only uh, played it two players. So Oh, interesting. So I was the most AP player in that game. Well, I usually am. But, like, I had to sit and think about my optimal route. And really, you kind of, you have to do that, but it really bogs the game down if you do it too much. So I felt guilty most of the game. <laughs> yeah. As far as AP how was How was the two-player experience? I've heard mixed reviews. I think I have a mixed review. Like the auction doesn't matter as much. We didn't yeah. we changed around here and there, but it wasn't really super important. We started off kind of in the middle of the board like and we're competing for the same types of peppers cuz you can block each other in the game. If there's a farmer in the space that you want, you can't travel through them. You have to go around them. So there was a time there where I was trying to get things and I was blocked uh, from getting them, but then we kind of just went off into different corners and it didn't really affect us as much. So I would assume that in a game with more players uh, that that would be more of a factor. It wasn't really in our game once we kind of got out of there. I, I haven't played it with more than two, so I don't really feel like I can give it the full like yay or nay, but uh, I thought it was interesting. I like set collection. I like how the mechanics, you know, the, the pepper hybridization thing works and that was kind of neat but the thing that bothered me the most is so they have these sweet ghost peppers that are clear plastic with sparkles in them they're the most valuable peppers in the game you have to plant black and white peppers together and those are hard peppers to get going so you really kind of want those just from a component standpoint you want that into in your tableau and I think it's cool that they built that in there thematically it makes sense like these are the most valuable peppers they're sweet and I want them Uh, however when you sell peppers you're selling them based on what is out on the board so if there is one ghost pepper you know planted on the board you sell your pepper and it's worth one whereas I would think that supply and demand in my brain says if there are less out on the board they would be more valuable to sell but that's not the case like if there are six green peppers, I would sell my green peppers more than I would sell my ghost peppers. So the only way that those ghost peppers are valuable is if you're using them in some of the more complicated chili cook-off recipes, and then they're awesome, but 
you know, I wanted, I ended up with one just like left over my tableau with nothing to do and it made me sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, and in the game, when you sell peppers, it's only every three money is worth a point. So selling a pepper for one point or for one gold is it's one third of a point. So it's worthless essentially. And I guess there's added value because there are, um, first to plant rewards. So if you're the first one to plant a certain color of a meeple, you can take the little shield, which is worth victory points. And there are the biggest rewards for the ghost peppers. It's just, I do agree with you though, that the ghost peppers come so late in the game that if you're not using them for chili cook-off recipes and once those three shields are taken up, the value, there's not enough time to plant them out on the board. And there's no real reason to either, at least that we found is that like planting those outside of getting that shield for points like, they don't give you peppers that you're usually looking for. They don't help reproduce peppers that you're looking for, right? They don't make other ghost peppers. I think they make... Like, yeah, they, they make white and black peppers, which you can already... You already had to get white and black peppers to get ghost peppers. So if you've got a ghost pepper, you're not planting it to get something new. It's it's the peak of the pepper hybridization. But, I mean, I still like the game. I think it's interesting. I liked it better with four than five, because five got... Five, I drifted off by myself which you think would be a good thing because there's less competition in blocking. But what happened is when everybody made the transition to planting whites, blacks, and getting ghost peppers, I wasn't in the right location to gather them. So everyone else grabbed them up and grabbed the recipes, and I was like, crap, I've got to do this by myself and plant one pepper a turn to get my combination. So with four people, there was enough mixture between having your own space but also interacting with the other farmers. But, I don't know, it's an interesting game. Yeah, I liked it. I think... I, I just want to play it with more players, like three or four. I I probably wouldn't want to play it with five. Just judging by the AP that was on my part, I know that for my group it will take a while to get through. Uh, so I think it's interesting. I think it's good. I'm reserving my final judgment until I play it with more than two players, though. Good call. Yeah, I'm keeping it, but... I think ultimately I would reach for Fresco if given the choice. Well, Dan, what have you been playing other than Scoville? So other than Scoville, we had a chance, myself, Matt, and Smee, to bust out my Essen copy of Orleans, or Orleans for those Americans listening. Um, Trashy. Very. It's just, it just sounds so cool, much cooler when you go Orleans and you get that all. You got it. It's good. Not the Eans. That just sounds funny. Anyways. Uh, Orleans, for those not familiar, is a, like I said, an Essen release of last year. This is another one similar to Hyperborea, which we've talked about before on here. Um, it is what people are calling a bag builder. And no, you're not actually building the bag, you're building the inside of the bag, the contents. So, in this game, you are, I guess you're considered to be like a nobleman in France, and you're trying to traverse the countryside, collecting followers, which consist of knights, farmers, traders, you know, things like that. Um, and these various people, you know, come, come into your following, which is your bag, and then you can utilize them to uh, take action spaces on the board, uh, actually on your personal tableau board, actually. So just to kind of paint the picture for you, you have a, a nice large personal tableau, um, and on, on there, there's about maybe 15 or so actions that can be taken. Each one of these actions has corresponding uh, villager tiles that must follower tiles that must be played to it in order to activate it. So every round, the game lasts 18 rounds, which is 
kind of long in my opinion, but we can get into that in a minute. Um, you're drawing these characters from your bag each round. How many you draw depends on other factors, but you're drawing them. Then you're allocating them to the board, and then you're executing actions for those where you've got a completed set of characters. And it, for me, this was um, this was cool because it was it was very Euro and it was very almost Feldian to me. It was it was a giant point salad. There was a number of different ways you could get points. You could do it via trading in the countryside by establishing trade houses and collecting goods on the map portion of the board, or you could do it from the I don't even remember. So you could collect the book goods. What else could you do in this game? Points. <laughs> yeah. Um, you could collect the little the little men for followers. Yeah. Um, were points. There was the goods. There were the number of trade houses that you built on the little map. So there's a little board section where you can actually like build and interact with that. And then the prestige board. And, and there's building tiles that give yeah. you points. So I mean. I think I think we got all the ways. Like Dan said, you know, point salad e if you want to use that word. But there's a lot of different ways to score. A lot of them interact. Um, so it's not completely like I'm over here doing this and you're doing that. You kind of get to do a little bit of everything um, just naturally. But yeah, yeah. And when we played, uh, the three of us actually all did a different strategy for the yeah. most part. Uh, our main. This is a game that kind of rewards you for having. A main strategy, and then I think you almost definitely need a backup strategy because at some point you everyone's main strategies are going to kind of uh, coincide, and that you know brings a little bit of confrontation—not confrontation to Europe, but you know what I mean. Like so, there's going to be competing interests for the various um, point categories. Um, so I think having a backup plan was was essential. Matt had a great backup plan and wound up. Uh, winning the game, but I think the point spread between Matt and Smee, who finished last, was only about maybe 15 to 20 points. And it could have been less, except Smee got hosed on the last two turns by uh, an event that came out, <laughs> which he had to pay taxes because he was doing a good strategy. Yeah, uh, so it's... Well, I agree with Dan. I mean, it, it rewards variety in play, or it rewards having, like, two strategies. And I think that the reason for that is because you want, like, a main strategy... And this is to qualify, to take a moment and qualify. This is a first impression. We played it once. But to, to look at it, having a main strategy was beneficial. And with three players, we all kind of could carve out our own place. The backup strategy was almost good to eat at the other person's main strategy a little bit. So some things you are competing over, like Dan said, there, even though it's a Euro, there's a little bit of confrontation in that you're competing for similar goods. So like my strategy was to go... Um, on this track and gain all these little men. Well, Dan was doing that as his kind of backup strategy. So it, I had to work around that. He was kind of eating at my main strategy. So it was interesting that way and that it provides you a lot of different ways to go, but you definitely need to kind of pay attention to what other people are doing so that they don't run away and be uncontested. Tiff, you played Hyperborea, so you know a little bit about bag building, how, and you've kickstarted Orleone. So how are you feeling about the game? Are you are you excited for it? Does it sound like something that you're ready to play? Yeah, I mean, theme wise, like uh, it's probably more up my group's alley. If they see the box for Orleone, they're pro they probably would play it. I think, uh, I hope anyway, since I kickstarted it. But um, I did get to play Hyperborea finally, and I really like that. The thing that 
might turn off my group or might turn off just other people is the dudes on the map aspect. I guess I'll just mention my one little problem with Hyperborea since we're here. Uh, I just, we didn't interact. We played the short game. So we kind of like had our dudes out there and we did stuff, but we never like really attacked anybody. We were just kind of hanging out on there. So that felt a little weird and I, but I really like the bag building part moving up on the different tech trees and stuff. So I'm hoping that Orleon just kind of feels like, like that, like Hyperborea without the dudes. I think, I think it feels similar. They're definitely different games, but as I played it, I couldn't help, like these are the only two games that I think are in this category kind of fully. There's other games that, that work from similar mechanics and things, but these two really do feel like, like the, um, more Ameritrashy Civ building and more Euro-y version of kind of, they're like cousins almost. Um, and I asked, actually asked Dan, cause I know the board control was something that he wasn't a big fan of in Hyperborea. I asked him about how he felt about the board control in Orleans because there is a definite, like, not dudes on a map, but there's area control in building the trade houses. Yeah. I, if I'm gonna make a judgment, and again, this is off one play of Orleans. I think Hyperborea has three or four plays. I actually preferred Orleans to Hyperborea, and I think I've mentioned before some of the reasons I, I didn't really care for Hyperborea. Some of the, it's not that it's a bad game. I think it's a very good game. It's just not my style of game. I think Orleans is more my speed. It definitely has that strategic, uh, aspect to it. I really enjoyed the bag building. I thought the bag building was smoother. It was a little bit looser. Hyperborea has a very tight resource management. Uh, aspect to it with the bag and that you can't reset your bag until you've used all the cubes in it. Whereas in Orleans, you're actually, as soon as you use a guy, he goes right back into your bag. So it, it opens up the, the game a little bit more for me and just allowed me to do, I think, more things that I wanted to, which was a frustration for me with Hyperborea because I just couldn't get, I couldn't connect. There was a disconnect for me between the main board and my player board and I just, I just couldn't get that through my head. Um, whereas Orleon, I think the options there, similar to Hyperborea as well, Orleon provides the, you know, addition of more texts and or buildings, they're called in this game, that give you different options and kind of hone your strategy. They complement it in, in such a way that it really makes it a lot more fun for me. So, and again, Hyperborea is not a bad game. I think it's a very good game. It's just... Of the two, this one was more my speed, more my style of game. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we we definitely have different game preferences, and it's I think that this is just like Hyperborea is like the Matt version of this game, and Orleon is like the Dan version of this game. They're they're similar. They've got a lot of interesting similar components, but it's like just the small tweaks I think fit our personalities very differently. And I like them both, and I think it sounds like you like them both, but we have our preferences because of the different things in there. So. I'm more than happy to play either of them any day, and I, it sounds like you know you're willing to play both of them. But we know where our preferences fall, so I will be interested to hear what Tiff thinks when she plays Orleans. I'm the tiebreaker. Yeah, she'll be the tiebreaker. So uh, you know, maybe Origins will get in a play of it since your Kickstarter copy won't be here till the end of the year. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Yeah. So Tiff, anything you've been getting to the table? Well, I did uh, get to play Lagranja. We had another Panericon, so I got to play it three players, and Lagranja was everything I was hoping it would be, so this is like two for two on games that start with La. 
um it's a farming game so what i did was to justify the purchase of this game i actually sold caverna which is kind of blasphemous with blasphemy (laughs) do you have agricola uh no i don't uh a a guy in my group has agricola i played agricola it's okay i just you know the whole feeding thing and the just like i have to keep feeding these people and every once in a while i get to do what i want to do thing is not my style and caverna kind of fixed that but i don't like the table sprawl of it i sold it to someone in my group so it's still around i'll still get to play it but man, Lagranja is exactly what I'm looking for in terms of like I want to be farming in a board game. <laughs> <laughs> it has a lot of things. Is it better than farming cats in the jungle? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's it's just totally different. I can't really compare. Um, <laughs> the way Lagranja works, it's got some really neat uh, multi-use cards. So they're farm cards that you can put in your tableau, and your player board actually has little cutouts, so it looks kind of cool. You guys should check out Board Game Geek and see what that looks like because it looks awesome. It's a little annoying and fiddly because you're sliding cards underneath your board a little bit, kind of like Glory to Rome if you've ever played that. Sometimes if you bump that player board, your cards get all messed up. But I did like the way it looked on the table. The farm cards have a couple of different abilities you can use. If you place them to the left, it helps you grow different goods. If you place them on the top, you can fill them to put a piece on the market square. So it's like an order that you're filling with the goods that you're collecting. And then there's a central market board that you're trying to put your dudes on, kind of. And if you put them down at the bottom, it's a helper with a special ability, kind of like a powerful ability that you give. And if you put it to the right, it extends your farm and it it costs more every time to extend your farm. But it's a really wide open farming game, so it feels Feldian in that way. Um, everybody keeps saying that this is if, if Uwe Rosenberg and Feld designed a game together, this is what they'd come up with. It, and it does feel that way. You know, you're trying to balance, you know, these cards over on the side where you're getting these goods to fill these orders to go to the market, but you also have some different choices. And, and every time, I don't know, I felt it, it was tough choices, but there are so many different paths to victory. Like, you're not really gonna go the wrong way starting out even with a wide open game you're like oh i don't know what to do but you're gonna do something it's gonna benefit you so it was kind of nice in that way it wasn't completely overwhelming like a lot of felt games can be it, it's pretty straightforward in that way i you know i start farming i get some things then i fill some orders i get some money i buy more things i don't know it was kind of nice it has it has some dice involved in it which i like so there's there's one phase of the game where you roll dice and you kind of draft actions that you can take. So it's kind of neat. You roll the dice, it gives you a pool of available actions, and then each person in turn order takes one of those actions. So I don't know. I liked every aspect of it. I can't complain. I, I loved it from the start. So I, I'll probably bring that to Origins so you guys can try it out, see if you like it as much as me. It's coming out from Stronghold pretty soon. Mm-hmm. April, maybe. April, maybe. I had heard he'd have some at um, Origins. Cool. It was really good. I liked it a lot. Yeah, is this one that you're interested in, Dan? I wasn't sure. Yeah? Very. Okay. It sounds interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant about the idea of Feld plus Rosenberg. Um, oh, that sounds so a little scary. Oh, it's so good. But 
Yeah, I mean... It is great. I really liked it a lot. Uh, if you can get over, like, I don't know, the look of it, I like the look of it. I've heard certain people say that it looks too pale. Yeah, I mean, I'm staring at a picture of it, and I guess that's what I'm stumbling over, is that, like, I don't even know... It doesn't look like I'm looking at a whole lot, is the thing. It's kind of like, I'm underwhelmed. <laughs> don't be underwhelmed. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> I'm sure my brain will be racing too hard to worry about what the what the colors look like when I'm playing this game. So It's not as I guess what I'm saying is it's maybe not as pretty as a lot of games that I play cuz I'm kind of like a snob about what games look like, but it still looks better than Castles of Burgundy, so. Hey, I'm perfectly fine. I like the chickens. No, oh, I hate the way Castles of Burgundy looks. <laughs> I can't stand it. Oh, whatever. It's true. It's fine. It's not fine. The game's ugly. Thank you. Well, how about a game that you thought was was pretty? You want to give us a quick rundown on Zango? So we had a chance to play Zango, which is a game about unifying China. Uh, this is recently released from What's Your Game? I think it actually just hit the U.S. this week. But this was in my Essing Top 5. So if you go back and listen to that episode, or if you already listened to that episode, you'll know I was really looking forward to this. And I must say, it did not disappoint. After one play, uh, this may just be one of my favorite games that I've played so far this year. Um, and I've been tracking, and I've played like 25 unique games. So of those 25, this has definitely been one of my favorites so far, uh, along with Deus, of course. But in Zango, um, one of the cool things is the cards. They have multi-uses, so um, you're building your tableau using some of these cards, which grants you bonuses, or you can play these cards to the center uh, of the board, which then grants you other actions that you can take. So it's a little bit of resource management, a little bit of, um, again, a tableau building along with some area control. What was really cool was I think the usage of the cards, and I think I think Matt enjoyed it. We'll let him talk in a minute here, but um, it was a little bit reading the rules. It was a little bit hard to digest. It was one of those, definitely one of those games where once you got into it and you saw the kind of interconnection of the mechanics and how it you know flowed, um, it was very simple to kind of grasp. Uh, now that's not to say the strategy is. Um, it's very deep. I'd I'd put this medium to heavy if I had to pick somewhere on that scale, leaning more towards the heavy, just because of a, a lot of the, the strategic aspects of it, along with some of the tactical stuff. But the cards, like I said, they're multi-use, so they trigger bonuses, but there's this neat mechanic where they're all numbered. So there's three decks. Uh, the first deck is numbered 0 to 40, the next one is uh, 41 to 80, and then the other one is 81 to 120, I believe it was. And so when you play to the center of the board, um, you're placing it face up. Um, it actually, if you played a number higher or lower than the card um, that was previously played, it has an effect on uh, the bonus action that you can take from the center of the board. So um, not a lot of player action. This is a true classic Euro, but the one way we found that really kind of screwed each other over, either intentionally or unintentionally, was playing these various numbers to the board to either prevent other people from taking bonus actions or really making it a lot easier for them to take these bonus actions. So I really love that mechanic. Um, it, you know, the tableau, again, like I mentioned, you can play cards to your tableau to get the bonuses, but the bonuses all combo off each other. So if you can really start uh, honing your tableau to uh, trigger off of one or two specific actions that you know you'll be taking at various aspects, 
various points in the game, then it, it really starts to be a lot of fun when you can really see these mechanisms start churning out um, all this cool VP and um, the engine that you've built. So I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, I can't wait to play it again. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I'll piggyback off of that. I enjoyed the game a lot um, from rounds three to six because <laughs> rounds one to three, as Dan said, this is a game that the rules explanation, I'm, I'm assuming it was more the rules than Dan, but who knows? I mean, uh, it just, it doesn't make sense until you play it. And that's just the case with a lot of these medium heavy euros, medium heavy games in general. Until you get them on the table and you start working through the mechanisms and playing with the cards and things like that, you don't quite get what's happening. I just felt particularly behind because by turn th- or round three, when I was like, oh, I get what's happening. I kind of already dug myself a bit of a grave because turns one to three are when you're building your engine and it's like three to six. The second half of the game is when you can really start like executing a lot of your big combos and things like that. So I'm excited to get another play because I know what I'm doing this time and I can really kind of go at it from round one. Um, I do think that this is another game that rewards picking a strategy and a backup strategy which might just be kind of the nature of these games in general, but um, really kind of looking through the board, looking at the state of the board when you first set it up, and seeing where these extra um, bonus rewards, because they're called titles, is that what they're called? Tasks. Tasks. The tasks that are set up are different each game, so looking at the tasks and seeing, okay, how can I get there best is really what you want to do because tasks are worth bonus points and things like that and you can get multipliers so there's a big source of points there and that is different every game so you need to pay attention to okay what are the cards in my hand what are the tasks on the board and how do I work with that so and that's just that that's nothing new for someone who goes at this game with a strategic mindset I just had to get through and break through the rules first because it's got some stuff going on but once you figure it out it's pretty easy and the card play is interesting I don't think, I think that more of the screwing over was more unintentional than intentional. It's really hard to kind of time things and, and say, okay, I'm going to play this card because I know that it's going to mess with you. That's really a, a subtlety that I don't know you really get to play with too much. But when it happens, you're like, cool, because any chance to set your opponent back is all, is all good. Um, but no, I liked this one. I think that this is one of the more interesting games that I've played this year. Um, I think I've logged like 40 unique games, but hey, you know, who's counting? <laughs> Tiff is shaking her head at me. Get a life. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that Zango is a cool game, and I'm excited to play it some more. Tiff, I feel like we're leaving you out on this one. Well, I didn't play it, so... Yeah. I okay, so we don't have to worry about it. I preached it to her all weekend. Yeah. He did. She didn't cave and buy it yet, but she will. <laughs> I mean, she plays this. I'm not throwing out a game of the year recommendation or anything like that because there's still 10 months to go, but I think that this is definitely a front runner for like interesting games that I want to dig into more that I've played so far. It's got more going on than Patchwork, <laughs> which I've been playing a lot of. So. What's going on with you two? You both like Patchwork and you both like this? I'm concerned. It's the reckoning. <laughs> I mean, I bought Patchwork because both of you recommended it. I thought it was, like, pretty unusual. Patchwork is that good. As a minor, what we've been playing, Patchwork is is a lot of fun, and i played that, like, ten times already. So thank you, Dan, for my birthday present. I know games. (laughs) Well, Tiff, we will uh, let you round it out if you want to. Anything that you want to chat about before we move on? 
Well, I play Murano. Oh, yes. Let's talk about Murano because <laughs> I watched you guys play Murano. Yeah. So we'll talk about Unpub in a minute, but on Sunday uh, of the convention, we decided to bust out a published game, Murano, which... Breaking I, all the rules. Yeah, we broke all the rules, which bothered some people for sure. <laughs> um, but we play Murano, which is a game that I got myself for Christmas, and I also got Dan for Christmas. Unfortunately, the copies I bought were both in German, and I didn't know that was going to be the thing. So that kind of made things a little bit more complicated. But we, we played it, and we played it wrong. So I hated it. So what did you end up playing wrong about it? Because I watched this game, and there were some mixed feelings. Half of you liked it, half of you didn't like it. Is what you I... played wrong, did it have that much of an impact? Yes. It did. Um, I misinterpreted the rule book, um, and thankfully, after reading BGG, I'm not the only one who misinterpreted the rule book. So there was some clarification from Mayfair actually uh, in the forums. But what Murano does—not steal Tiff's thunder—but there's a, a giant, basically rondelle that surrounds the entire board, and it gives you. I think there's what 18 action spaces. Each action space kind of doubles up a little bit for some of them, but you're moving these little boats around and basically the world is your oyster you can move one boat as far as you want um where we goofed up was when we were moving multiple boats because if there's a boat in your way you can't pass it but you can pay gold to move it and what we were doing wrong was we were playing where you actually were paying for the spaces you moved it instead of paying for the boat to move the boat oh i could have told you that i read the rule books while i was watching you guys i'm well, sorry apparently you weren't observant enough to realize we i wasn't it. paying attention yeah it's we, the first boat's free the second boat costs one the third boat costs two yeah and we caught we caught the move your boat unlimited thing i just think i don't know maybe it was just third day of a con and yeah. you know the morning that i had had that day was kind of rough um well no that's a big deal though but yeah, no, it's huge, and I think I think it would will definitely impact a second play of it. So I am definitely willing to give it another shot. Um, yeah. But again, this was on me. I misinterpreted that piece of the rule book. It's okay, Dan. I nailed everything else, which is pretty damn good because it's okay. Well, in watching the game, I I thought that that was kind of the most unique aspect of it was moving the gondolas. I thought that that was a cool way to do action selection because I popped in the middle of it and I was like, wait, is that how you guys are picking what you're doing? Is like moving these little boats around and you know, that's what you're doing. So I thought that that was cool. And then the other thing with, like, you put your little dudes on the gondoliers and you assign a card. And you can only sign one point-scoring yeah. card each so, to each little guy. Yeah, it's really cool how at the start of the game, actually, you just ha you have no direction, really. Because the cards that you draw um, determine how you score points. So you, there's an action where you can draw these specific uh, cards. I forget what they're called. Character cards. And these different characters... Um, give you points at the end of the game based off of different game states um, on the different islands. The game board's made up of seven different islands. And so you don't really have a direction in the first couple turns until you get one of these cards and go, oh, okay, you know, I need to build X on this island or something like that. And from there, you can start to kind of develop what you want to do. Um, and it, it's kind of it's kind of unique. It's kind of cool. I really liked that part of it because no two people had the same goal, even though some of them may it seem kind of intertwine um, some of the objectives. But but would you would you rather just like have everyone get dealt a random character card at the beginning of the game? 
Yeah, I I was thinking that uh, when we played it. I would have rather had a direction to start with. It's kind of hard. I mean, granted, you can you can collect money. That's one of the actions, and that's always going to be good because that helps you move boats. Um, so it, it's okay. Like, I guess I just needed someone to tell me, like, it's okay. You're going to get some direction here. But at first, I was really kind of like, oh my gosh, there are so many action spaces. I don't know what to do with myself. Um, and even once I got my character cards, I was having a hard time figuring out how to get those things to happen exactly. Now that I know how it's actually supposed to work and how to play it, I mean, Sunday of a con is just never a good time to learn a new game, and I, that should just be a thing that I never do. <laughs> but... Well, it was a, I mean, I got towed that morning, so I was kind of seeing red. It was third day of a con. It was the German version, so it was the, the cards, perfect storm of that. Yeah, odds were against, yeah, the odds <laughs> were against us, and I, for all those reasons, I can't wait to try it again. Yeah. But I think you know the German version. I think at the end of the day, actually, won't be a problem once we've played it a couple times because the symbolism is actually quite clear when you kind of understand the interpretation. The the only bit of German on the cards is just like a further explanation of what the symbolism is, um, but it's not needed. I feel like so, Dan is just saying this to make me feel better, and that's great. What a good friend. Um, <laughs> I am, because Tiff <coughs> boned it and bought the German version. Listen, but I am stop. keeping it because I need to the German myself. version, the German version was only thirty-two dollars. <laughs> the American version, even on sale, cool stuff is still like fifty something. So. I can see Deutsch for a little bit of money savings here. It's not a problem. See, it's really helping you get more fluent in German. That was my goal. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the nice Germans. Also, yeah. I looked it up on <laughs> Board Game Geek, and originally the post said that the first edition was German slash English. It is not. It is just plain old German. And it's fine. I could totally play the German version, and I could make it work. The symbolism is clear, but I'm lazy. And and so what I did was I sold my German version. I bought the English version, even though it cost me twenty more dollars. Uh, I think it's worth it. And now that I know that we weren't playing on the right rules, and that's why I was maybe a little bit frustrated. Possibly, um, I'm really looking forward to giving it another try. All right. So Murano, if you do it right, could actually be a fun game, but we don't know. Yeah. It's from Marcus and Inca Brand. I mean, those guys it's are from the awesome. Village guys. I love those guys. They designed Village. I love yeah, Village. Amazing. Well, we will uh, we'll have to check back in. <laughs> we'll have to check back in and uh, see how the second play goes. Maybe I can get in on that, since I actually know how to play. Wow. I do, too, now. It hurts. All right, so that ran a little long, but that's what we've been playing. We're going to go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we are going to chat a little bit about Unpub 5 and our experience with that. So come back after the break. everyone so welcome back it is time to get into our unpub 5 wrap-up so unpub 5 happened this past weekend here in our hometown of baltimore maryland and if you don't know so unpub is a convention for designers of all experience levels to get together and get their prototypes in front of hundreds of different people so if you want to learn more about unpub specifically you can head over to their website unpub.net um but that's the little mini pitch on what Unpub is. And like I said, this past Unpub, number five, was held in our hometown of the Baltimore Convention Center. And we spent, I spent two days, Tiff and Dan spent three or four days there. 
um, playing prototypes, talking to designers, giving feedback, and just enjoying the summer camp feel of conventions. So what did you guys think of Unpub? I know that this was Dan and I's first, and Tiff, you've been to one or more previously, so let's get some first impressions of five. Well, for for me, having gone last year when it was in Delaware and it was held in basically like a high school gym or high school cafeteria kind of a thing, um, it was a lot bigger. There were a lot more people there. It was actually pretty amazing that way. Um, I, if I were a designer, I imagine I'd be pretty happy because they had to have gotten a lot of play tests, especially if they had shorter type games. But um, it was just amazing to see how many people, assuming a lot of them were local to Baltimore, just kind of showed up to play unpublished games. That's awesome it it speaks a lot to how much the board game community is growing in general i think yeah dan what'd you think about the size and you know the nature of unpub having no comparison that was impressive i was i was excited that i could get to go this year it was on my radar last year but uh due to scheduling conflicts i was unable to get up to delaware which is actually a pretty short commute for me um yeah as tiff mentioned it was a lot of people i was not expecting that many people when we were speaking with Daryl on Friday at the designer day. Uh, he had mentioned that something like 575 people had pre-registered as, as mm-hmm. coming, you know, for free as just play testers, which is awesome. And that's on top of the maybe, I don't know, 50 to 70 designers that were there, uh, showing off their games. So it was, it was really a sight to behold. I was kind of, uh, I was taken aback by the reception it got, but I was thrilled it was in Baltimore. Local conventions, we don't get many of them in the board gaming space other than our little Games Club of Maryland things that happen. But, uh, yeah, I was pleased. Well, yeah, I thought it was cool. I had... Oh, sorry, Tip. No, I was going to say we should mention that uh, this is a little bit different kind of convention where that if you're coming as a player or a play tester, you don't actually pay to register. The designers are the ones that buy the tables and, and are funding the the convention essentially so you can go and play games all day for free yeah you just walk right in um we had we pre-registered so i think 10 of those 575 were biff because he got 10 tickets for some reason but uh, i don't know but uh so you just walk right in you filled out a name tag and you went down and just sat with a designer and you know some of the designers were people that i knew i was nudging kelly b and like that guy made this game and this guy made that game and other guys are you know guys and gals are first time tries and and things like that. So, like I said, a wide range of experience levels. Um, and even Richard Launius was there. Yeah. Tiff is trying not to fall out of her seat. Oh, Richard Launius. It was so nice uh, because I hey, actually... Tiff, it's Richard here. I just wanted to let you know I like to design board games. You do One not make fun of Richard games. Launius on the podcast. I like board games. Okay. That's what I do. I like Cthulhu and I like board games. <laughs> well, I, I'm probably going to leave that in. Um, and now what I want to do is, you know, we got some rough ideas of what we thought and I wanted to chat with you guys about design day. So this is like the start of Unpub was the designer day, the designer dinner. I know you guys were there kind of from the start on Friday and what was that like? I didn't get to go. So I'm just wondering how there were some talks and things like that or. Well, uh, designer day was sponsored by, uh, Dice Hate Me Games and it's basically a day where the designers come in, they set up their tables. Um, there are some panels and things and there's a dinner at the end, um, where they all come together. We, we ate the Pratt street something. 
don't know. Alehouse. Alehouse, there you go. Um, so it was kind of nice just without playtesters around. Now, granted, I'm not a designer, but they have a pledge level on the Unpub Kickstarter that you could re- do uh, very important playtesters. So that's how Dan and I got in. Maybe one day we'll design a game. But until then, we'll just have to do that. But <laughs> it was nice. Uh, I got to sit down and have dinner with, with Richard Lanius right next to me and, and talk about board games. So... Yeah, it was fun. And they did some panels where they talked to the publishers and people like that. Cool. Hey, Tiff, it's Richard again. Did you see my panel? I was talking about board games. I like them. I like them a lot. <laughs> I will break I designed you. many, many board games. So this is not okay. Was... <laughs> this is not okay. I'm just going to go right out there and say it. So that was Friday. Then Saturday was the official start of Unpub with open playtesting where you could wander right in and play some games. So it was held in two kind of like convention hall rooms. There was um, there was a lot of space theoretically, but there were so many people there that there wasn't a lot of space. Um, and, you know, tables filled up quick. I, I tried to just pick and choose games that I could sit down at because some of the games that I was really interested in were pretty booked solid. Um, some people had sign-ups for playtests and things like that. But either way, there was always something to play. There was always somewhere to go. And you kind of had to get into the mindset that, yes, maybe I want to play this game, but I'm here to just kind of play test all kinds of different stuff. So just sit down at the table and start playing. So we did that a bunch of times. Um, and, you know, I was wondering what you guys thought was really interesting, because I think we played a bunch of different games between the three of us, and we didn't actually play too many together. So, you know, Tiff, you played the most, I think, out of all of us. Was there Were there any big hits? So one of the cool things uh, about having gone to Unpub last year is I actually got to see one game from last year to this year and the progress that was made on that. And that was on, uh, Odd Socks by John Dubois. And he, is, he had submitted that to the Dice Hate Me 54 card challenge last year. So I had a chance to play it for that. And it was a really simple deduction game where there are basically 10 pairs of socks, but you pull out one of the sock cards at the beginning. So there's one sock that doesn't have a match. And your goal is to be the person with that one sock at the end of the game. Uh, really simple. You just play a card and you do what it says on the card and the cards have different actions. Now back then, the actions were really simple. It had a number and then you are moving those cards from, you know, from your hand to your, you're exchanging them with your neighbor or you're passing them or you're discarding them. Um, the new version this year uh, was a little bit different. Each card kind of has a, a special power where I felt like there was more swapping. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it felt like there was more exchanging and you have a basket of cards. I feel like a year ago, the basket of cards was all face up, and now you're allowed to place one face down. So that made it kind of interesting for the deduction, maybe a little bit harder, and it was definitely a lot smoother from from last year to this year. So it was really cool to see that progression of the design, and um, he has it on print and play if you want to check it out. It's on Unpub and you can download the file. It's really simple, just those few cards. And if you're looking for something that's kind of a light deduction game, it's perfect. And I suck at deduction. It made me feel like, hey, this is deduction I can handle. Uh, so it was kind of nice to play that one. Very cool. Hey, Tiff, Richard. Um, did you know I wear socks when I design board games? What kind of socks do you wear, Richard? Odd? That's what I would ask, Richard. If, not odd. If you were really Richard. I am Richard. <laughs> Richard is way smoother than you. I would just like to point that out. I'm offended, Tiff. <laughs> um, 
I'm yeah, so that sounds pretty cool. Dan, how about you? I know you didn't get to... You probably played the least games out of all of us, so anything stand out in your, your few plays? I played eight. Oh, uh, well, whenever I talked to you, you were like, I didn't play any games. I didn't play a lot on Saturday. Saturday was just way too crowded. Um, and all the ones I wanted to get into were a little bit longer in length, so as you mentioned, having to wait around or schedule something, I'm not very good at that. Um, I get antsy. I want to wander around. I want to look at everything. So I, I actually was more taking in the experience than anything. As Tiff mentioned before, I hope to be there maybe one day on the design side of things. But um, I did get to play a few games. Um, so I had a chance, along with Matt and Tiff, actually, to play um, a new game that's going to be hitting Kickstarter soon, actually, from Matt Loomis, who recently kickstarted his card game Dragonflame successfully with Minion Games. And this was a dexterity game set in space. Um, so each player is handed a little spaceship and some cargo cubes, and you're trying to basically just flip your spaceship around the board, collecting various gems of different colors. And when you've collected one of each gem, you're allowed to then release the atomic bomb or the atomic kaboom or whatever you want to call it, um, which you then stand up away from the table and you throw this little disc onto the table, and you try and blow up other people's planets. Um, I really had a lot of fun with this. It was such a simple concept, and I thought he executed it really well. Um, and it was actually the first dexterity game I've actually seen with player powers, because there's there's different ways uh, throughout the game that you can obtain these different uh, player powers that enhance the way you flick or do certain things that give you a bonus um, for the game. So I really enjoyed that one. Um, and I know it was when you guys got to play, so I'll let you guys chime in. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it's one of those games that uh, you can expand to your liking. So like when we play Extreme Elk Fest across the, the floor, uh, this might be one that we can you know make the whole table wide and, and throw some obstacles in the way and try to make it you know really challenging. Um, and it, it seems like it would scale well. Um, I know he's got some plans for like a fifth player and some different stuff when it finally hits Kickstarter. So, you know, I'm looking forward to the final product, but even in just the proto stage, you know, about midway proto kind of stage, um, it was a lot of fun and it plays quick. And one thing that we chatted with him was kind of that the idea of like the overpowered nature of being able to like combo together your flicks. Um, and how that's actually a good feeling. And I, I think that this game gives you that feeling of um, during dexterity games when you're like, I'm doing really well and chaining all these things together. So that's always a fun thing during dexterity games. Um, makes me feel better than when I flick my car off in pitch car. So so Cosmic Kaboom really kind of surprised me. Um, I've, I met Matt Loomis and I, I've played games with him and he is one of those like total computer brain guys. He's so mathy, so smart. And I mean, you have to be smart in order to design any kind of good game. Don't get me wrong, but a dexterity game from him just kind of surprised me. So when he said that he had one, I put it on my list of things I definitely wanted to check out. Uh, I suck at flicking, so there's a definite barrier to entry for me. I need to practice a little bit more. But it was still fun, even though Matt kept on blowing up all of my planets the entire game, even though I was clearly going to lose. It didn't really make any sense. He's kind of mean. but um, Couldn't help it. My, my bombs just go where they go, man. No, you could have targeted Dan or Matt. I won. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, he won because you targeted me. I would just like to point that out. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I thought 
It was like it was like a flicking game that felt like pinball because as you flick your little like spaceship around, it's bouncing off the different planets, um, and that kind of felt cool. I love pinball, so um, yeah, I liked it. I think it's going to be good. Looking forward to backing it. Cool, cool. So my turn. The one game that stood out to me um, is called Made from Scratch, and this is a game about making recipes from different ingredients. Um, so it's kind of like a little area control game. I, I shouldn't say little. It's actually like a long, it was like a 90-minute game that we played. Um, there's five recipes out on the board, and say for something like a chicken salad, there'd be different ingredients on, on the recipe, and you'd have chicken and lettuce and tomatoes and cucumbers or something like that. Um, and then it would have like a prep time and a cook time. And what you would do is you, through card play and hand management, you would play the ingredients and then put cubes onto the recipe. And different things let you put more cubes. Like if you, if you had premium ingredients, like the finest Argentinian iceberg lettuce or something crazy like that, or 10-year-old aged cheese, um, you could put extra cubes if you had fancy things like that, um, which gave you more area control. And then... The really interesting part was once you finished the um, the recipe, you would take that recipe and then it required a certain amount of cook time. Every turn, you'd put cubes onto it to signify 10 minutes had passed. And something like a shepherd's pie takes 40 minutes to cook, or something as a salad takes 10 minutes to prep. So there's variable wait times to score. So I thought that that was the most interesting thing, was this whole, like, you're going to... Yes, you've won the area control, you've got the recipe, you're going to score those points, but it's going to happen at variable times. The only problem is, is that was also what they hadn't quite worked out, is that what stretched the game was something like a meatloaf, which took 70 minutes to cook. So that takes seven turns minimum to score. Um, so they they were still refining the whole like speed and pacing of the game, but I think that once they figure that out, what they have is a really nice polished product already. The cards look great. The, the game itself, the art looks great. Um, they just need to tweak a little bit of the timing to, to make the game play so that it doesn't feel like you're waiting for your actual meatloaf to cook. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was one of the, the cooler games that I got to play. I did like Cosmic Kaboom and some of the other things that I played, but made from scratch, there was some, some nice thinky elements in it and, I kept stealing Steve's ingredients, which was fantastic. Tiff, what else did you find interesting in Unpub? Um, so another one I played was kind of like a white whale prototype that I've been chasing around for a couple of cons, and that's uh, T.C. Petty III's Club Zen. Uh, this is a worker placement game about reducing stress. <laughs> so um, super quirky theme. Uh, you're basically you're going around with your opponents, and you're trying to plan your schedule at the spa so you can, you know, reduce your stress. You have two kinds of stress. You have work stress, you have emotional stress, and you have three tokens, one for morning, one for afternoon, one for evening, that you get to place uh, as you go around and turn order in all these different spots on the board. There's restaurants, there's a gym, you can go get a massage, you can hang out at the beach, there's a nightclub, uh, and you can check out some different events and, and classes like pottery. So uh, <laughs> it's really thematic for a Euro game, and it's got some interesting things that change up the worker placement feel of it, where most worker placements, you're trying to block opponents from 
places, or you're maybe not trying to, but it helps if you block opponents from different places, whereas this actually encourages you to get your opponents on spaces with you, because it will reward you more. Like, say a space, if I go to the restaurant, it might, you know, take away one of my uh, emotional stress cubes that I have. If I if I go to dinner with, with someone else, then it takes away two of my emotional stress cubes and a work stress. So it, it kind of was this... It was fun just to play. It was funny uh, because you. I had this moment where I had like a bajillion work stress cubes and, and no emotional stress cubes. And I was like, this is my real life. I was going to say, did it feel like real life? It felt exactly like my real life. So it was funny in that way. And, and it, it, like I said, it just had a lot of flavor. And I like how you have to sort of work together, but there's still one winner. Um, and I was really glad to finally get a chance to play it. So that's Club cool. Zen. Very cool. That sounds pretty quirky and interesting, and TC is a good designer, so I look forward to that one. So a few more before we wrap up our Unpub chat. Dan, I know you've got one more. Yeah, so Tiff and I on, what was it, Friday night? I think it was Friday night. We sat down with Jason Katarski from Green Couch Games, and we played his new um, prototype for Scott Holmes' next game that he's going to be publishing. It's called Best Treehouse Ever. And I think that's exactly how it's set. Mm, it's set in, like, the Clueless universe? No, it's set in a tree. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but it's the best treehouse ever. Anyways, so in this game, it's a, a simple drafting game. Uh, players are dealt six cards each round, and the different cards uh, correspond to rooms that you can put in your treehouse. So your treehouse can have X levels. I think it's, it goes up to five. And these... Different these cards, these different rooms correspond to what six different colors, Tiff? I think it was. There's six to, all together. Yeah, I think so. Five or six, something like that. Yeah. So on your turn, you're drafting a card, then you're passing them left. Um, the way it works, though, your tree has a balancing mechanism. So on your tree, which is the the, the base of the tree, um, there's three little circles. Um, you start in the middle, and every time you play a card that's off center. To one side or the other, you move that marker. So if you've played a card to the left side of your tree, um, your tree weight shifts to the left. But your next card cannot be played to the left because it's got too much weight. So you got to play one to the right so that it bounces back into the middle. And then you can go either way again. That's cool. So it's, it's a cool little balancing thing. It adds a little twist to the drafting um, mechanism and how you go about selecting your cards. At the end of each round, there are these four kind of cards. I guess it, it varies based on player count, but we were playing a four-player game. Two of them let you double the points of the rooms of a certain color, and the other two negate the scoring of those colored rooms. So at the end of each round, the, there's a scoring, and players will count up uh, the number of rooms they have in each color, and they will score points based on each color. Um, again, like I mentioned, they can either be doubled or some could not even score. So if I put the no score on yellow, all yellow rooms don't count for anything this round. So that is determined. I think those cards are handed out in, was it reverse player order? I think it was or something along those lines. I, I think Jason was still tweaking how he wanted to go about that yeah. aspect of the round. But altogether, it was, it was a nice little game. The art was done by Adam McIver. So it was very colorful, uh, very clean. Uh, I really liked it. The kid were, kids were cutesy. They had different rooms. They had a board game room. They had, you know, an observatory, all kinds of things you would think of. It really captured the treehouse theme, I think, very well. All the things you think of when you're a kid that you want in your treehouse were present there. 
couple of things I think need to be ironed out with the scoring piece of it, but I think the base uh, mechanic of stacking the cards on your tree and swaying it one way or the other, I thought that was really cool. So looking forward to that. I think that's going to be coming to Kickstarter in March, so stay tuned. It's got Scott Alm's name attached to it, so it could blow up um, just seeing that. So Tiny Epic Treehouse. No, best treehouse ever. <laughs> So yeah, I got to play it too, and I mean, my initial impression of it was that my board game club kids at middle school would love it, um, because they love Sushi Go, they love that, like, simple drafting mechanic, and this is just a little tiny twist on that, it's not too complicated, the art is, like Dan said, it's beautiful, and it's, it's nice and whimsical, like, I had a million aquariums in my treehouse, which is totally what I would put in my treehouse if I could build a treehouse, so that was fun, yeah. It's it's a cute one for kids, I think. It's a great little small box. It'll come in the same size box as his other title, Fidelitas. Jason's other title, Fidelitas. So one of those games that'll fit nicely in your pocket. Cool. Tiff, round us out. Tell us about milk production. <laughs> well, one of the ones that I got to play that really impressed me was Milkman Dice, which I think they're going to change that name. But Josh Mills is a North Carolina designer, and he whipped this up right before Unpub. And it's basically, it's Colbaron minus the worker placement plus dice. So I love Colbaron, so it, it's very, it was appealing to me in that way. Um, he didn't say that that's what it was, but that's what I'm saying that it is. It has okay. that feel towards it. Um, so what you're doing in Milkman Dice is you're basically, you have some cows. You start, I think, with two, and you can buy more later. And... You roll your dice, and there are different faces. There's a cow face, there's a bottling face, there's a spilled milk face, and there's a couple other things. But if you roll the cows, then you produce raw milk. You put the raw milk in your storage tanks. If you roll the bottling, you can take any of the milk in your storage tank and change it into whole milk, skim milk, or chocolate milk. And then you put that in, like, your other, another area and it's ready to be shipped out. There are orders that you can get on your turn, and you place those in one of four different sections. So you have kind of like a track that your little milk truck goes on. So one is closest to you, and then two, three, and four are further and further away. So you use like the action points, which would be the truck face of the die, to deliver that milk. So if I have a order that's all the way out on four, I would need one to move it onto my truck, two, three, four, five to get there, six to deliver it. You know, it, it would happen over multiple turns, but it's basically you have to plan out, you know, how many delivery t like actions you need to get it there and back and trying to efficiently deliver the milk and you can upgrade your truck and get more slots for the milk but it, it was it was like a really it was a lighter version of coal baron not that coal baron is super heavy and i keep comparing it to coal baron but it feels completely different because of the dice what i really liked about the dice was that there are two different types of dice you have four dice on your turn the white dice that are the active player only to use and you also have two black dice that you use every single turn. So all the players are rolling two black dice, even when it's not their turn. So it's not like you're sitting and waiting for someone to take their turn. You have some actions that you can do, although they're limited.
limited. Um, so it's kind of nice. And then you can use money to re-roll and, and some different things like that. But all in all, I it was one of my favorite ones that I played the whole time I was there. It was really simple, but still kind of had that Euro-y feeling towards it. Um, the theme, I like the theme. kind of has like an Americana-y feel, and I, I dig that. So yeah. it was fun. This was one that was always filled up or the designer was out at lunch or something. We, we kept trying to get it uh, get down to play it, and we just didn't get a chance, and I'm bummed because it sounded pretty cool. Yeah, Dan calculated my victory points during the game, so that was nice. I didn't have to do that. <laughs> I did. Was it complex? No. <laughs> an extra cow. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if that's it. Well, now that we're all uncomfortable... Hey, Dan, it's Richard. That was really freaking weird. <laughs> Can you have a conversation between you and Richard in real time? We're in separate rooms. I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So those are some of the games that we enjoyed at Unpub 5. Um, Unpub 5, I think, overall was an awesome experience. I got to see Tiff in real life, which was excellent, and she unfortunately had to spend time with us. But uh, we had a good time. Next year's Unpub 6 has been announced to be in Baltimore again. So uh, anybody else interested in coming on out and joining us in our hometown for Unpub 6, they can do that. Those dates will be posted at some point in the future, and we'll keep you posted on those. Um, one last little tidbit for you guys. We will release in the near future um, a small episode with some soundbite interviews um, with people like John Muller and Daryl Lauder, uh, amongst others. We'll go ahead and release that as a little mini-sode. We don't want to tack it onto here because it'll get a little bit too long, um, but we did do some content while we were on the scene. Um, and we'll have that up for you guys. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about Unpub, you can go ahead and check out that mini-sode in the future. Hey, Tiff, one last thing. What else lasts three days? I don't know what. Arkham Horror with six players. Yeah, that's my game. <laughs> I hate you. I love designing board games. That's what I do. I am smooth as a baby's buttocks. I hope you're cutting some of this out. I'm leaving it all. So join us after the break where Richard me, Gabriel. Tiff, Dan, and Richard Bonius are all going to review Roll for the Galaxy. I didn't design that, but I could have. So welcome everyone back from the break. It's now time to get into our feature review and today we are talking about Roll for the Galaxy. So this is by designers Wei Wa Wang and Thomas Lehman and this is a dice-based implementation of the popular card game Race for the Galaxy. So in this game you're going to use simultaneous action selection uh, and dice pool building and thematically you'll attempt to expand the reach of your cosmic empire and you'll do this by set a Settling worlds, developing technologies, and manufacturing and selling goods. So, looking at actual gameplay in Roll, you and your opponents are going to simultaneously proceed through the same round phases. You'll start the game with a few generic action dice and a few starting tiles and a sweet, sweet dice cup, which Tiff loves so much. You can use those things for anything. <laughs> you can also use a regular cup for anything. No, these are sweet. These are space cups. They are space cups. Um, so... <laughs> they only hold, like, four ounces. That's all I need. Space, space shots. Yeah. You space shots. I just keep whiskey in the other cups that I don't use. <laughs> so to be begin each round, what you're going to do is you're going to roll the dice that are currently in your dice cup, 
and you're going to secretly assign them to the five action options behind a player shield. The five actions are exploring, which lets you choose between getting new tech and world tiles or getting money. Developing, which lets you advance your techs. Settling, which similarly lets you advance your worlds. Producing, which lets you make goods on the planets that you've settled. And shipping, which lets you sell off those goods for money or victory points. Most importantly, one of the dice when you assign these uh, secretly is going to pick a specific phase. And that's the only phase that you can guarantee will happen this round. Any of the dice that you assign to the other four phases will actually only take effect if your opponents have chosen those phases. Once you assign dice, you all reveal, and then you execute the phases that have been chosen by all the players in order, starting with exploring and ending with shipping. Each die that you have assigned to, the, to that action on your player board lets you conduct that action a single time. Any dice that you don't get to use because they were assigned to phases that weren't picked get to go back into your dice cup, so at least you don't lose them. Um, any spent on actions go to something called the citizenry pool, and those are kind of in limbo. You have to wait to purchase those again before you can roll them. Once you've gone through all the five action phases, you spend money to buy back dice and put them into your dice cup. Everything then resets, and you're back at the start of the round where you can re-roll your dice. Players continue through this until a preset supply of victory points is exhausted, or one of the players develops or settles their 12th tile. And that is Roll for the Galaxy in a cosmic nutshell. Um, and we can actually just get into what we thought of the game. So, Tiff, what are your general thoughts on Roll for the Galaxy? Well, I can safely say that this really cures a lot of the problems I had with Race for the Galaxy. I really liked that game when it came out. Or maybe not when it came out, but when I discovered it. And I played it solo against the robot a few times, but I couldn't get my group to play it after they played it for the first time because the the symbolism and iconography on the cards it can be very confusing, and it's just hard to remember from play to play. Even having played it more than them, when I go back to it, I have to relearn the game all over again. So I feel like Roll for the Galaxy does a little bit better job. Yes, it has the, the iconography, but it has explanations of what you do on all the tiles. So it's not nearly as complicated and hard to remember. I've played a bajillion games of this, and I've never had to look at the rule book since the first play. Yeah, and I agree with all that, and that's part and in due to a very nice player shield that when you first look at it is like, what the heck is on this player shield? But it literally has everything from the rule book right on it, and that's sitting in front of you the entire game. Um, the symbolism, I agree, is is tough to explain, um, but you finally realize, or at least I finally realized that, oh, hey, the words are an exact interpretation. It's not extra text. It's literally what the symbols are saying. So you get two, two forms um, of any of the, the rules that are being stated. So I think that symbolism as like a barrier to entry, while teaching is still kind of tough just because it's new, I think that once you figure out what it all means, like there's no referencing back to the rule book, like you said, or anything like that. So I think it's pretty easy to overcome with that first play. Yeah, I think... Dan, would you... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to Go say, ahead. I think looking at it can be overwhelming, but once you play around, you get how it works. Yeah. Dan, any opinions on, like, the symbols? I know that uh, the symbolism I know in the original Race for the Galaxy was one of the reasons I got rid of it. It was not a big hit with our group. I don't know what exactly it was, but I don't think any of us were really feeling it. And I was a little skeptical, as I've mentioned before on the cast, uh, going into this one, because if it had the same kind of feel and the same kind of confusing symbolism, I, I kind of was like, oh, this might fall flat. I, I think overall they have improved upon it. 
Uh, obviously, with being a dice game, it's probably a little bit easier to improve upon it because the symbols probably have to be inherently a little bit simpler. Um, they can't be as complex, and there can't be probably as many unless you want to put uh, a ton of different dice in it, which uh, I guess this has a ton of Did I mention dice. that this was played with 20-sided dice? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. Yeah, for me, the, the biggest... Um, setback was the first play listening to the rules. I think that was really confusing. But again, as you both have mentioned, once you got into it, once you got a round or two under your belt, it clicked. So Yeah, I tried really hard to explain it well, and Ben confirmed that he thinks I probably did the best that I could, but until you play it and and get used to those symbols, it doesn't really make any sense out of context because I'm like, oh, you can do this or do that. So I think the most confusing thing... Oh, sorry, to, no, I didn't see Go you. ahead. I was just going to say the exact same sentence that you're about to say, so go for it. No, I, I was going to say for me the most confusing thing, and I think the biggest barrier to my head <laughs> for the understanding purposes was... Uh, as Matt mentioned in the kind of brief description of the game, was placing that one die initially on one of the five actions and knowing that that was the only one I was guaranteed to take. And even more, that die could be anything. So it didn't have to match the symbol of the action you were taking. Um, so once that kind of, once I cracked that nut, I was like, oh, I get that. That's really simple. That's really intuitive. But the explanation of it um, at the outset I just was like, huh? And I was I was doing it wrong the first couple of turns, but once I did it correctly, it was cool. Yeah, I had the same problem when I learned it. Chris Kopak is my buddy up here, and he's like one of the best rules explainers out there. Uh, so it was still hard for me, even though he explained the rules really well, understanding that simple fact that that doesn't have to match. You know, our brains just want to match symbols, and when you have that little, you know, action selection tableau thingy in front of you, you just want to put the symbols in the column that they match with. So it was really hard to get over that, but it, you can do it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So one of the other points about Race for the Galaxy that I, or Roll for the Galaxy rather, that I wanted to bring up is this idea that it's a dice game. So it comes with a ton of dice, I think like 100 plus dice, um, and you're rolling them and the, di- the dice rolls that you get impact what you do. So that's inherently worrying to some people because it's it's randomness. You're talking about dice games. But I feel like this game gives you a lot of opportunities to mitigate that randomness and play with it because even though your dice come up certain symbols, you have things like wilds, you have things like the dictate power, which is inherent on your player board, which lets you move dice around, and then you have these other reassigned powers that you can um, gather when you settle different planets and get different technologies. So I think that as you play, even though you're like, great, this is a dice game, and you're thinking it's going to be like light and random, I do think that there's a lot of different ways to combat that and make this a truly strategic game. Yeah. I mean, I think it's way more strategic than a lot of dice games. If I, th- if I was going to compare it to anything, I would say that it feels more like an Alien Frontiers, where you have options to change those dice rolls. They're not going to be as frustrating as something like King of Tokyo, where once you roll it and you do your re-rolls, you're done, and you just have to deal with it. And maybe you wasted you know, some of your dice, and it doesn't feel efficient, and that might bother some people. This, for the most part is rewarding no matter what you do with your dice because you're either getting extra actions based on what your opponents chose, you get what you assign to, plus if no one picked that action, they go back in your cup and you have them, you don't have to pay for them again. So either way, it feels okay to me. Yeah. Now, Dan, I know that you, I mean, you've got some dice games that you like, but you definitely have a a mindset when you think about dice games. Um, Do you feel like 
I know you've you've got limited plays of Roll for the Galaxy, but did you feel like it gave you more opportunities to play with that randomness, or did you feel kind of bogged down by it? Um, I, I thought the ability to uh, utilize a die, well, remove a die to utilize another die symbol as anything you wanted was was a nice little bit of mitigation. I Yeah, dice games are dice games. I mean, they're always going to be random. They're always going to have some element. So for me, as long as you give me a way to kind of mitigate it as best as I can, that's fine. The other aspect that with this, it, it didn't bother me as much only because you don't know what actions are coming up each round because you're only guaranteed to get one action, and that's the one you choose. Um, if your opponents decide they want to do that same action, it doesn't matter what you rolled, you're only taking that one action. So that, for me, was another little bit of, I don't, say, I don't know if it's necessarily mitigation, but it was a it was a factor in my critique of it because it, I don't know, it limits the use of the dice altogether. It's not just what I rolled, it's what everyone rolled and chose. So... Something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and to kind of build off of that point and touch on another point that I was thinking about was interactivity in a game like this. Um, and I think that the idea that you can only guarantee one action is going to happen, I think that the little bit of interactivity that's in this game, because one of the, the flaws I see is that there's not too, too much, I do think that the little bit of interactivity in the game is one that helps with that you only get one action problem. Because when you're sitting around the table... Once strategies start to develop, you can get a good feeling and at least have a little bit of information to go on when you say, okay, I think this person's going to choose this action. I think this person's going to choose this action. You've got five goods sitting on your planets. You're probably going to sell. Maybe I can move some dice over and sell some goods as well off of your action or something like that. So while it's not inherently interactive, it's a lot of solo play, which we can chat about with Tiff because I know that we've We've Skyped this game and stuff, and that, that helps add to that. But I do think that the little bit that's there, the looking around the table and interacting that way, helps you figure out and and make informed decisions on what actions you want to make sure happen and what actions you want to kind of bet on a little bit. How do you feel about that specific aspect of interactivity, Tiff? I mean, I agree with that. Like, it, it helps to be aware of your opponent's tableau and what they're building up and what they're trying to get um, and and. Part of the fun of the game, I think, is trying to predict that and getting what you want out of it. It opens it up to a little bit of metagame because you can kind of table talk and influence the people you're playing with uh, to, to take the action that you're hoping that they take kind of a thing. For me, it's just the right amount of interactivity. I don't need to be completely interactive with my opponents. It's just a little bit of like trying to figure out what they're doing, but I don't need to know every little detail, which is part of the thing that makes it so skypeable is you don't necessarily need to see someone else's tableau in order to play it. We've been skyping it a lot, and, and it doesn't seem to affect the scores too much. It's always ending up pretty tight, whether you can see the other person's tableau or not. So I don't know if that's a plus for the game or a minus, but uh, I'm enjoying playing it online. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to how you like to play. Because I know in the, we mentioned this briefly on a previous What We've Been Playing episode. You know, I like the games where I'm sitting at the table with people better just because I think that gaming in general is more fun for me when I'm sitting at the table with someone. And Dan mentioned it helps him keep his pacing when he's looking at someone else. But I don't get to play games with you, Tiff. And if I can sit down and play Roll for the Galaxy over Skype and it works well and we keep, you know, the gameplay is pretty much the same except for I don't have your tableau sitting across from me, which I can still build on my own side of the, the camera. But, 
you know, I think that that's a benefit if that's something you're interested in. If you're not interested in that or you like highly interactive games, then this doesn't this doesn't succeed in that area. But if you're looking for a versatile game, I think you've got something here with Roll for the Galaxy because you can you can play it online and in person pretty easily and have a very true experience both ways. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's one of those few games where you can sit down and get a pretty close to true experience with the com- interacting with the components in the way that you would if the person were sitting across from the table with you. I do a lot of online gaming just like on Yukata and in different websites, but that doesn't have the same tactile feel as actually rolling dice and, and doing that stuff. So it's kind of nice to have a game that I can bust out. Uh, and bust out fairly often. I'm pretty sure this is my most played game so far this year. And, and get that real experience of interacting with someone, even though they're a few states away. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a bit about like price point and value of this game. So, And I guess we can fold in kind of replayability or variability into that as well. So in terms of like what you're getting, you get some very cool dice cups. You get components to fit five people. You get... 100 plus dice, you get dice cups, you get the screens and everything for everyone. You get a bag to hold the tiles, and you get a ton of tiles. I think that artistically, if I remember correctly, this is recycled from race. Is all the art and things like that recycled? I don't know for sure, but that would make sense. Yeah, I don't. I can't confirm that, but I feel like I remember seeing some of the things from, from Race for the Galaxy. So you're not necessarily getting unique art, but this isn't really a game that you play for art. It's more like just an added bonus. Um, the dice are nice. They're mini, a smaller version. Um, they're screen printed, not etched, which was a bit of a bummer. But you're, you get a lot in the box. So in terms of just stuff that you get, this game retails for 60 bucks, And I know that that was a concern for Dan. Yeah, so for me, the price point was a bit of a concern. This retails for $60. And I know maybe not all of us always support our local game store. Um, We support some of the friendly local online stores uh, where it's much cheaper. But even so, um, for $60, I wasn't very impressed with what it came with, even though there are a ton of dice. But they're they're little, and like Matt said, they're not etched. They're screen printed. They're decent weight, you know, as far as dice are go. They're they're all right to roll. But you're not really rolling them. You're throwing them out of a cup, the the holy grail of cups, apparently, according to Tiff. (laughs) So, I don't know, just, I think it's a, it's a mind block that I have. Um, $60 for a dice game is just not something that I will budge on. I would have to get this online or through a sale of some sort if I was ever going to pick it up. I just don't see the lasting appeal of it. Even though it's a good game, I don't see this being something that I reach for enough to substantiate a $60 price tag. Yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, $60, when I saw the price tag on it, I was kind of like, ooh, $60. And then I thought, okay, lots of dice. And then I bought it, which luckily at my game store, I get a pretty significant discount for customer loyalty. And boy, am I loyal. So good good discount on that. So I didn't pay $60 for it, so it didn't hurt me as much. But when I opened it and I saw that the dice were tiny, now I realize the, the component choice is logical and necessary for the game. Because if you had big chunky dice on this, you would need much bigger awesome cups. So. You need a dice bowl. Right. So <laughs> the, the tiny dice make perfect sense. There's nothing wrong with them. Yes, I would rather them be etched, but I, I you definitely wouldn't pay like $80 for a dice game. And that probably costs a lot more. So uh, I understand the component choice. $60 does feel a little pricey. I will say that. But if you think about the amount of replayability you could get out of the game, there's just so many tiles, you know, that 
comes in a giant giant bag of tiles that you're going through. So every game that I've played so far, and I've at least played it 10 times, uh, has not felt the same. I was not doing the same things. I was not needing the same kind of actions each time. So it felt different. That's pretty good replayability for what you're getting. Yeah, I think that it can offer some of the feel of race in that, like, looking at variability, it's not that, like, you've got to slog through, like, a learning curve every game. It's it's you play it once and you get it, and then every game that i played since that first game just feels like I'm refining a strategy for that game. So every new game, it's like I pick a strategy and I see what the tiles give me, and I'm trying to do that to the best of my ability. So it's not like I'm fighting against the rules or against any kind of complications. It's really just an exercise in me being able to kind of maximize and be most efficient, which I enjoy because I feel like I'm I'm playing the game to its fullest every time I play, um, and I get to do that over and over again because there's so many different ways to play it. Even with just five simple actions, the difference in strategies up at the table with different players and then also just within what you get in the unique combination, I think is pretty cool. Yeah, so I mean, I think that $60 is a lot for most games. I can't think of a lot of games that $60 doesn't feel like a lot for. But I think that if you can get it cheaper through a customer loyalty program or through online or through a trade, this game is worth its weight. But how does it stick out from the other bevy of dice games that came out last year or are coming out this year? It seems like dice are all the rage and everything has a dice game or is coming out with a dice game. And I'm, I'm almost on dice overload, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a trend with, you know, pandemic and nations and uh, roll through the ages. Is that what it's called? Um, lots of dice games. I do feel, although I haven't played all of those, I think that this game does a good job of capturing the essence of the base game without just being the base game. The dice it themselves do change it to a unique game as opposed to just being kind of a rehash of the same old thing. But I can't say that it's any better or worse because I haven't played a lot of those. I, I just feel like I'm getting a lot out of this game. So, yeah. and I don't have a lot of dice games. I do too. I I mean, I realized that there are a lot of dice games coming out when I made my top five because I was like, holy crap, they're all dice games. And uh, apparently I like them. Even though I have a propensity to never roll what I want, I, dice games I think are becoming more popular because of the time crunch. You know, as more and more gamers enter the market, you know, everybody has lives and it just takes a lot of time to play games and people are looking to get that strategic feel but in a shorter amount of time. I think that's why Pandemic the Cure is popular because you can you can play a game of Pandemic in a half hour rather than an hour and and so that might be something I sit down and do before bedtime rather I, I'm not going to go play an hour long game right before bed. That's probably not going to happen. I'm too tired from work but a half hour I could probably make my brain work for a half hour and i think that's what roll for the galaxy does um you know some dice games are just you know random filler stuff this is strategic this is a real a real game i'll put it in quotes but uh you know it, it gives me that little bit of fix i can hop online get in a quick game with with copac or or, or matt and, and and call it a night and feel like i actually played a game and that's nice I think that captures it perfectly. You, it feels like a full game. It doesn't feel like a re-implementation of something else. It doesn't feel like I'm playing Pandemic in a half hour. It just feels like I'm playing Roll for the Galaxy kind of thing. It's its own entity is what it feels like. And it probably hits about the 45-minute mark. So it's got some length to it, too. 45 minutes is a good length. Dan, you don't agree? Hmm? You look like you might not agree. No, I just... 
again, I'm just getting to the point with dice games that I just I want to play. You're just saturated with dice. A game that doesn't have dice. Um, even 45 minutes for a dice game is kind of long for me. So I, I, I want my dice game. I think in my head again, a dice game should be light, should be filler, it should be fun, random, that sort of thing. Making dice games strategic, while I see the merit in it and I like it, I, I mean, it's not that I don't like it. I just, I think I would rather just play a, a regular strategic board game. I was going to say, we need to save this for a discussion topic because I think it's like a mental block. Because in, in a strategic Euro game, you have some kind of random element. There is no game that you're playing that has, I mean, there are very few games, I should say. Maybe your Hansa Teutonicas might have little to no randomization, but you're flipping a card somewhere. You're drawing something somewhere for most games. So I think we should save this topic. No, and I agree. I'm not saying that euros are completely luck free i was just saying again for me a dice game when i see a dice game i want it to be light i want it to be airy i want it to be fun sure um and this is this is a strategic game cool so let's just chat about our overall impression so tiff roll for the galaxy thumbs up for me i like it dan i'll give it a, a thumbs up not my first choice but um not a bad game i won't be buying it though fortunately you do not have to brother it is a thumbs up for me. I enjoy it. I think there's a lot to get out of it. So that is our impressions of Roll for the Galaxy. And that is actually the end of episode 16 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. Thank you all for joining us again. Let's do some wrap-up stuff. Remember, if you want to reach out to us, Facebook and Twitter, the League of Nonsensical Gamers, nonsensicalgamers.com for reviews and chats and blogs and all kinds of cool stuff. If uh, you want to reach out to us, we are on Twitter primarily. So, Dan, where can they find you? Uh, at League Nonsense for the League's account. And my personal one is at Scandalous underscore Nad, N-A-D. And Miss Tiffany? At Inept Gamer. And you can find me at Cinnamon Buns. And Richard here. Y'all can find me in Arkham. That's where I like to find Cthulhu and roll dice and do all kinds of fun thematic things. All right. And be sure to tune in for episode 17 coming to you in two weeks. We will see you then. Everyone can say goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye, y'all.